Good morning, church. I need a couple of volunteers. You can be a regular, you can be a visitor, but you need to bring a Bible with you, and I just need a little help in reading a couple scriptures. So, first two hands that I see. Thank you, Elaine. Come on up. And thank you, Tammy. Come on up. So, while I read our text for this morning, you two are going to look up and read... Zechariah 9, 9 and 10 will be Elaine, and Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. Zechariah is near the end of the Old Testament, it's one of the minor prophets. And Isaiah, if you just, you know, flip through the Old Testament, you can't really miss it. It's so big. Isaiah chapter 9, 6 and 7. And Pastor Gina has got a microphone that the two of you will use for those. Who's got the page number in the blue uh, Bibles for our, our text from Luke 19? 1632. Thank you, Lori. Zechariah 9. Yep. Yep. No, uh, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, I believe it is. Zechariah 9, verse 9 and 10. Okay, it's right here. Same spot as in my Bible. Okay, we're in Luke chapter 19. And last week, Pastor Gina preached on uh, a parable that Jesus told that is going to begin to play out before our eyes this morning. And so the parable was about a king who was going away to a distant place to be crowned king and about whose subjects rejected his kingship. Um, And it was about who, um, how, how people stewarded gifts that the king had given in his absence and then what he did when he came back to exert the kingdom over which he was to rule. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples ahead, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, And bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Just a a quick, because I just realized I didn't put this in the sermon. Jesus isn't stealing. Um, This was normal, that if uh, a rabbi or a Lord needed something, he could ask for it and it would be expected that someone would give it as as a way of serving the rabbi's needs. So Jesus is not stealing, he's not modeling stealing. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. 
Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And now the Zechariah passage. Okay. Um, the coming of... Uh, nice and loud. Just a minute. The coming of Zion King. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king, king comes to you. Righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of the donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. And the battle bow, or bow, I mean, the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Thank you. Thanks, Elaine. You can have a seat. Now me. Okay. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. We will reign on David's, he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from the time on the forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Thank you, Tammy. I want to begin by um, just telling you about three different people. Jason, Julie, and Christian. Jason um, <clears throat> was born in West Michigan to parents who knew the Lord, so he grew up in the church. And there was never really a time in his life, some of you will relate to this, Victoria I think just shared it, there's never really a time in his life where he would say that he didn't believe in God, he didn't believe in Jesus Christ. But um, like many of us, there's a time where his, our roots begin to um, grow deep and our faith becomes our own. And for Jason, that happened right around the end of high school into early college where he had an occasion of just deep moral failure, fell on his face and um, had his own brokenness and sin exposed to him. And it was an experience or an encounter with the grace of God that really led him to begin to follow Jesus Christ. Well, shortly after college, Jason took a job in business And here's what happened. He spent the next 30 years feeling somewhat divided, 
Kind of like he lived in two different worlds. So he loved his faith, he loved the Lord, but he felt like he could only talk about his faith at home or at church. And um, he enjoyed his work, but other than his character, his godly character sort of leaking through into his day-to-day actions, he, he never really felt like his faith was brought to bear. He, he couldn't speak about it. He couldn't talk about Jesus very much. It was sort of an oppressive atmosphere. And so there, there grew to be kind of this divide for Jason, kind of this private religious faith and public life divide. Julie um, actually grew up and lived her whole life on the west side. And Julie didn't hear about Jesus until after her third marriage had ended in violence. But the people at church used to say that Julie reminded them of the woman in the Gospels who poured that expensive perfume. Remember that woman over Jesus? She was just so grateful. That was how deep Julie's love and her thankfulness to the Lord was. And so she spent the first few years of her Christianity just basking. Like we, like we go to the beach and we bask in the sun. She just basked in the light of a love that she had not known for five decades and that was real and present to her. And yet, as wonderful as Julie's experience of the Lord and of his love was, she never seemed to be able to convey much of it to her neighbors, many of whom came from the same types of brokenness and background experiences as her. And it wasn't for lack of desire. It just seemed that there was something unspoken kind of working to silence her. And so Julie, too, kind of settled into this, what I would call like a fragmented or a divided life, sort of a private religious experience of Jesus that was renewing and it was joyful. And then this public life outside of church and home that it didn't really seem to have much to do with or talk about Jesus and the kingdom that Jesus seemed to talk about so much. Christian is a GVSU senior. And uh, he's a senior who spent the first three years of college living with this gnawing emptiness inside. An emptiness that's been familiar to many of us. And, uh, and he was led to Jesus by a classmate at the end of his junior year. And so Christian actually returned to campus for his senior year just full of hope and expectation for how he might share Jesus and his new faith with others. But Christian learned pretty quickly that religion was considered something that's private and it's to be kept to oneself. It's not to be pushed on anyone. And so Christian heard people tell him, you know what, Um, truth is relative. Uh, Don't be pushing this one truth on me. There's many paths to God. And in fact, many people would say there's many paths not just to God, but We don't even believe in a God. We believe kind of in self-fulfillment or self-actualization or realization. I mean, people had all kinds of just spiritual paths that they said to Christian, don't you be so arrogant and brash as to say that there's only one thing that's true. And so Christian was deeply saddened by the responses that he received, so much so that he joined an apologetics club because he wanted to learn how to dialogue with people, but he never really did get to the point where he was able to share. And he kind of settled into this same divide, this fragmented private religious life and public life where he didn't seem to be able to bring or speak about or convey much of Jesus in his kingdom. And friends, what I want to say is that 
Jason and that Julie and that Christian and that each one of us here this morning needs to be encouraged by what I believe is the central message or thing being portrayed by Luke in this text. So for 10 chapters, Luke has had us following Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. That's over half the gospel. Chapter 9, verse 51, Luke says, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So up to that point, for almost three years, we, we watched Jesus proclaiming what? The good news of the kingdom of God. There is another kingdom that's not the kingdoms of this earth. It's present in me. He's not just been proclaiming and bringing that good news. He's been embodying it. And so as he, as he ushers in this kingdom, he's been pushing back the kingdom of darkness and of this world. And so he's been healing people. He's been cleansing them physically. He's been restoring them spiritually. He's been calling men and women and children into this kingdom. He's been saying, come, follow me. Follow me. I'm the way to the Father. I'm the way to God. And to everyone that follows him, he gives life. In fact, he's so generous, he gives that life even to people. He gives things even to people that aren't following him. So he delivers. He heals. And then Luke says, near the end of three years, he turns. He sets his face toward Jerusalem. Toward the city that the whole Old Testament has portrayed as the center of God's dealings with the human family. So the center of the people who have been the center of God's long-term plan to rescue the world, not condemn it. And from Luke 9 to Luke 19, Jesus has been walking the whole way. He's been walking. And here we are, about a half mile outside of Jerusalem, and he feels the need for a colt. What's going on? What is going on? That Jesus walked the whole way to Jerusalem, and now he says, hey, I need, I need a ride. Jesus is being incredibly intentional. He's following a script, one that was written by God, announced by prophets, God's spokespeople, centuries before. And it's now being played out right before their eyes in live time over dusty roads from the hill that leads from the Mount of Olives down into the valley across the way to Jerusalem. Jesus is clearly and intentionally revealing himself as Israel's God-sent king, and in fact, the world's king. So 480 years earlier, Zechariah prophesied, Look, see, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will proclaim peace to the nations, His rule will extend from sea to sea, from the rivers to the ends of the earth. Your king comes to you riding on a donkey on a colt. Which king is that? Israel doesn't have a king. They haven't had a king for a long time. They've been under Roman rule. Well, it's the king that Isaiah prophesied 200 years before Zechariah, 680 years before Jesus rides in on a donkey. Isaiah speaks not just of Israel's exile and their judgment for failure to 
obey the Lord, but he also speaks about God's deliverance. And he says, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, the rule and authority, the kingdom, will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government or of his kingdom and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And so very knowingly, very intentionally, Jesus Christ descendant of David and son of God, mounts a colt and makes a slow and deliberate entrance to the city that is the center of God's plans, at the center of God's plans for the world. Jesus reveals himself clearly as God's chosen king. Now listen to this. He is not crowned. This is not a coronation. These people who throw their cloaks down, who put him on the donkey, who praise God in loud voices and shout, Jesus is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're not making him king. There is nothing that anybody can do to make him king. He is king. And he is revealing himself. He is unmasking before them that he is the king. And they are recognizing, they have the eyes to see his kingship. So they're acclaiming him. They're giving him his rightful due. And I believe, friends, that one of the most striking elements of this story is something that's unspoken or unsaid. And it's this. That this revealing and this acclaiming of Jesus as king, not just of Israel, but of the world, happens publicly. That it happens on the hillside. So consider what Jesus could have done and didn't do. He could have gathered his disciples. He could have said, Tommy, Anna, Vic, Lori, Nancy, come with me. He could have gathered his disciples and taken them into a room and locked the doors and said, listen, let me tell you what you may be coming to guess. I'm the Messiah. I'm God's chosen and anointed king, the one long prophesied about. I'm the savior of the world and this is what's going to happen but I want you to know I'm the king and they could have had a wonderful, private, religious experience together. Jesus and his disciples. But he didn't do that. Why didn't Jesus do that? Because Jesus' kingship is not a private matter. He's not here on earth to reveal himself privately. He's here publicly revealing himself as God's chosen Savior and King of the whole world. Once again, Jesus' kingship is not a private religious matter. It's public truth. To quote Leslie Newbegin, it's an open secret, but it's public truth. And that's really significant because if Jesus has revealed his kingly rule and authority publicly in full view of the powers of this world, this just, just isn't just in front of Jewish leaders. Who's over the Jews? The Romans. 
How powerful are they? They rule the known world. Anybody watch Gladiator? Can I just see a show of hands? Like, you're not admitting anything. It, I thought it's a good movie. That, that gives you, a, that gives you a, a, just an, a glimpse into the power of a human empire and its ability to rule and to squash and to extend its desires over humankind. In full view of the Roman Empire and the Roman leaders, Jesus is saying, I am God's chosen and anointed king, not just of the Jews, but of the whole world. I'm king. And so, the Apostle Paul, when he writes to the Christians in the center of the Roman Empire, those who live in Rome, says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, Because it's the power of God to bring salvation first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. What is the gospel? What's the good news? Jesus didn't come saying, Hey, I've got good news. I love you and I forgive your sins. And you can have eternal life in me if you believe in me. That's true. But that's not the gospel first and foremost. The gospel, friends, is Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the gospel. That's good news. Not Caesar. Not any other earthly authority. Caesar and every Roman Empire promised that they would bring, literally, in their words, salvation. That if you just gave all your allegiance to Rome and to the emperor, if you just devoted yourself, they would bring the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. They would bring the shalom that this world longs for. All you had to do was bow your knee before Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. And Paul says, no, there's another Lord in this world. There's another kingdom. And it's not just a spiritual kingdom, though it is that. It's a kingdom that is over the kings of this world. Jesus Christ is Lord and that is not a private religious matter. He has revealed Himself publicly as Lord. And if we don't get that, our lives get segregated and we've got nothing to say to ISIS and the Syrian conflict and racial reconciliation needs and everything that we see when we turn the evening news on and we see atrocities and horror and murder and rape. All we do is turn and say, oh, that's so horrible. And then we turn away. And it becomes normal. And we're anesthetized to it. Jesus' kingdom has everything to do with the kingdoms of this world. Jesus reveals himself publicly as king. And that public revelation calls for decision. And so the whole crowd of disciples who've seen the love and the power of God at work through Jesus, they just begin to praise God. And I want you to hear again, they're not in church. And they're not in their living room. They're in the park at John Ball Zoo. They're on Lake Michigan Drive. They're beside Parkway Tropics. They're out in the streets, friends. They're worshiping God Not on Sunday morning. 
They're worshiping him in the streets in full view of everyone else who says, They're worshiping God publicly and no different than Jason and Julie and Christian, these early disciples face the shushers right from the start. Teacher, make them be quiet. Rebuke your disciples. Don't say that. That's not true. That's too bold. You're not Lord. Shh. And Jesus responds, again, very intentionally. He quotes Habakkuk, the small minor prophet, chapter 2, verse 11, as he says, if they keep quiet, these stones will cry out. What do those words come from? They come from, they're in the middle of a prophecy that God's given Habakkuk about God's appointed future, inside of which are these words. For the earth, the earth, not heaven, the earth will be filled with the knowledge, everybody's going to know, it will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Friends, the waters are the sea. And so for the earth to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God means everything on earth knows the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, the mercy, the love, the healing, the peace, the character of God. Everything knows. Everyone knows. And that glory of knowing God and belonging to Him, being His, that glory fills so much so that There's no room for darkness. And so the prophet who's prophesying begins to wonder, well, what about all the darkness that is in the world right now? And so as he anticipates God's glorious future, he also begins to talk about, he's not blind to, he begins to talk about terrible evil and injustice in the world. And it's as he talks about God's promised glorious future, juxtaposed against the very real evil of the present, it's as if he's wondering to himself, who's going to speak the truth? Who is going to speak the truth? Who's going to witness to what God's, who God is and what He's going to do? Who will witness? And that's when he says, the stones of the wall will cry out and the woodwork will echo it. In other words, there must be There has to be a witness to the truth. Even if humankind is blind and unable to recognize God's glorious work amidst the rubble of human sinfulness, there will be a witness, even if that witness is an inanimate object, because God's glory demands it. There will be a witness. If they keep silent, these rocks will cry out about what I'm doing. And the beauty of this morning, as compared to Habakkuk, is that there are people who are witnessing, who are looking on, and who are not missing the moment. They recognize, this is not just a man. This is not a prophet or a teacher. This is God. Anointed, chosen king over God's people in the world, and they're acclaiming him. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the creator. Blessed is he. But... Even as they rejoice, listen to this. Luke includes something very sad. He quotes them as singing, Peace in heaven 
which is noticeably different than what the angels attending Jesus' birth proclaimed at the beginning of Luke when they sang, Peace on Earth. And so why the absence here of peace on earth? Jesus makes that clear as he approaches Jerusalem and he begins to weep over her, especially over her leaders, saying, if you, even you had only known, if you'd known on this day what would bring you peace, you hear his heart, now it's hidden from your eyes. And peace is lacking because rejection of Jesus has blinded them. And that blindness and that rejection, it's got concrete historical consequences. Jesus closes this section by prophesying the sacking and the downfall of Jerusalem. And 40 short years later, historians all tell us, the Roman Emperor Vespasian sent his son Titus to conduct the Jewish wars. And Jerusalem was slowly, over the course of four to five years, reduced to rubble and ashes because they did not recognize the time of God's coming. It matters how we respond to Jesus Christ. It matters now because Jesus is still coming. Not coming like he was coming then. He's coming by his spirit. He's coming through us. He's coming. He's coming. Longing. Scripture says he doesn't long for anybody to die in their sins. He's approaching. He's coming. Longing to bring the peace. If only you had known what would bring you peace. Probably the most beautiful and yet I think heart-wrenching part of all of this is that Jesus weeps over the people who are rejecting him. Anybody here ever been rejected by someone? Yeah. You're lying if your hand's not up. I've been rejected by a few people and I've wept for myself. I've wept for my pain. I've wept for my hurt. I've wept in anger. But I have never wept for people that were rejecting me the way Jesus does. Here's the Son of God on a mission. Luke said two, two, two sections earlier. He's on a mission to seek, to find, to save the lost. He's got the purest heart, the purest of intentions. He's been labeled and misunderstood and rejected. And he is weeping for those who are rejecting him. Friends, this is our God. This is the humility and the love of our God riding on a humble colt, weeping over the proud rejectors. And friends, our God this morning, I believe, invites us into his experience. He invites us first to boldly, publicly, shamelessly acclaim Jesus Christ as King, as Lord. We live in a world that's entirely different than the Roman emperor, Empire with its focus on the emperor as supreme and divine. Ours is the one that Christian, the GVSU student, banged into. Don't let anybody be so bold and so brash and so arrogant to claim that they know the truth. And Jesus says, if you keep quiet, the stones will cry out. He calls us not to keep quiet. My sister-in-law uh, finds herself in, a, in this dilemma. She... Um, she lives here in town. She loves her neighbor. They've got a great friendship. Every time her neighbor's uh, hurting but proud, and every time she tries to share Jesus with her neighbor, 
there's this distancing that happens where her neighbor kind of pushes off and, and like a gap grows between them and, uh, and just lasts a little while and then she'll slowly meander back and kind of test the waters again. But if my sister-in-law doesn't mention Jesus, they stay close. And so she finds herself in the, you know, facing this choice between keeping the friendship and remaining silent about Jesus or truth-telling about Jesus and risking rejection and the loss of a friend. So she's decided that this neighbor's eternal destiny is worth temporal discomfort and loss because, in her words, Jesus is Lord and King. I can't change that. She needs to hear it. It isn't going to change because she doesn't want to hear it. Jesus calls us to be public witnesses, not private. And I just want to say a real quick word. We're not at all talking about um, the manner in which we share. So you hear me as really enthusiastic right now, which I am and we all ought to be, but that doesn't translate into rudeness. We share gently, we share with love, we share with humility, we share persistently, we share in the manner of the Lord, but we are bold because he is Lord. So he calls us to witness at school, at work, in our neighborhoods, to the truth of his kingship. His is not a spiritual kingdom that's irrelevant to this world. It is absolutely necessary to this world. It's a kingdom that has everything to do with the daily news. And... pray that the Spirit of God is making this connection right now because I don't know how clearly I'm making it, but I pray that he makes clear to every one of us that Jesus' kingdom isn't some lofty spiritual idea that we're waiting to come just at the end in its fullness, but that his kingdom, his domain, his authority are absolutely present and needed and proclamation of them and embodiment of them is needed today on the west side in this world and that to follow Jesus is both to witness to him and to enter into his own pain this places us as his followers in tension because when I talked earlier about us like watching the evening news or seeing the pain of the world and then going well that sucks it's hard and turning away becoming anesthetized to it That is what creates a divide in us. The way around the divide is actually to join Jesus in his lament. Because lament turns into intercession. And intercession, prayer, Lord, bring your kingdom. Bring your justice. Bring your righteousness. Is the way that the Lord works to change the world and the neighborhood around us. And friends, um, it's so just so real and necessary because this world and everyone in it faces uh, far worse than the judgment enacted on Jerusalem. Paul says to the Corinthians, chapter 15, after he talks about resurrection from the dead, he says, then the end will come 
when Jesus hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So, he came on a colt, came humble, came lowly, crucified, resurrected, ascended. But when he comes again, he's not coming lowly. He's coming in glory. He's coming in majesty. He's coming as the rightful king over all the kings of the earth. Revelation 21, 22. And we want to stand before him unashamed. We want to say that in every spot you put me publicly, I was willing to testify and to say, to be your witness, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the Lord of grace. He's the Lord of mercy. The Lord of forgiveness. But he's Lord. So I'm just going to end by praying for us that the Lord would strengthen and embolden this church.